0: I'm so glad you've joined us for Chow at Home. These digital studies allow us to continue to study God's Word together, even in a season of separation. Some of you are doing that through Zoom small groups. Others are doing this through small groups that are beginning to meet in person. And I want to encourage you as you're able to, according to your own health needs, begin meeting together in person. As the Lord directs you, we are meeting on Sundays at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 5 p.m. We do so safely and My encouragement to you is to consider, especially as this liturgical year comes to an end this Sunday with Christ the King Sunday, and we begin a new liturgical year with Advent, leading through Christmas, that we all recommit to what it means to gather together on the Lord's day. Again, as you're able, as you feel the Lord direct you, but we certainly are providing a safe environment for faithful worship in this season. As we prepare for tonight's study, I do want to pray Colic number 70 on page 667 of the prayer book for Inner Renewal Through the Word. Gracious God and most merciful Father, you have granted us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Assist us with your spirit that the same word may be written on our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us and renew us according to your own image, to build us up and edify us into the perfect dwelling place of your Christ, sanctifying and increasing in us all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Hope you enjoy tonight's study of Job.
1: For the last two weeks, we have been studying and reading through together the book of Job. And as I said in the very first week that we started it, this is a hard book. It's a book that raises a lot more questions than it actually seems to provide answers for us. And also, as I mentioned in the first week, this is intentional on the part of Job. Job is not just trying to answer questions. Job is growing us in wisdom. Job is teaching us to embrace mystery and to endure even in times of pain and suffering. And there's a lot in the 30 some chapters that we read of Job's conversation with his friends. There's a lot in that that's really honest and reflective of the way that we experience suffering and pain and how it affects us. There's a kind of brutal honesty that we see in the person of Job and the way he responds to God and to his friends. You see as Job wrestles with his pain and his loss, the despair that starts to creep in at times, the bitterness and the anger that wells up in him, simply the sheer experience of time that he has to endure. There's no immediate relief. There's no immediate answer to his problems. And You also see Job's isolation. Even though he is surrounded by a group of friends, they don't really understand him. They don't really connect with his pain. He still feels isolated and alone and misunderstood, even among friends. At first, the friends, they just want to sit with him. And then they want to give him advice and answers. And then they start to get frustrated with him. People who suffer chronic pain, people who go through extended periods of grief, they can relate to Job's experience here, the way that people respond to them, the frustration that they experience from others when they can't simply take an answer or move on. So one thing that's really beneficial about Job, and I think something intentional is that as we read it, it allows us to walk through this experience of Job's pain in a way that's reflective, as I said, and indicative of the experience that many of us endure. But Job, Job is, of course, relentless, despite everything he endures, despite the frustration of his friends. Job does not relent in his demands and his request to hear from God. He doesn't want to speak with his friends. He wants to speak with God directly, and he wants God to answer him. Look what he says in chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, might find God, and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Job here is demanding for God to answer. He wants to know what God has to say for himself. Or again, later in chapter 31, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Job here, he wants his day in court. He wants God to show up an answer for himself. Job still is committed to his own innocence, his own righteousness, and he thinks that God owes him an explanation. It reminds me a little bit, Job's attitude here, of what C.S. Lewis says about modern human beings and the way that we often relate to God. Lewis uses the imagery of a dock, which In the English judicial judicial system, in the court, this is where a defendant, someone who's accused, the person on trial, this is where they sit and they have to answer questions. And here's what Lewis says. The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. I rarely question what C.S. Lewis has to say about history, but I think Job is a good example to show that it's not just modern man who has put God in the dock. Job, this ancient man that we are reading about, he too has put God in the dock. Job demands that God answer for himself. And so far, God has remained silent. 36 chapters of conversation between Job and his friends God has not spoken. But then in chapter 38, God responds. We read, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And what is it that God says when he finally responds to Job, finally answers Job's requests? Does he explain to Job, why he has had to endure this suffering? We, of course, know some of the story behind it that Job doesn't know from the prologue. Does God tell Job what was behind it? Does he answer Job's complaint about Job's innocence? Does he affirm it or does he deny it? No, not really. God's answer is poetically rich. Hebrew scholars who study the book of Job say that The language and the poetry that we find in God's speeches is the richest and most beautiful poetry that has occurred yet in this book. So it's rich and it's profound language, but it's not really an answer. What God has to say consists of more than 80 rhetorical questions. It's just a series of questions over and over that God is posing to Job. And there's three different types of questions, you could say. The first types of questions are questions about who, questions that show God's power in comparison with Job. Look at what he says in chapter 38, verse 25. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? This is a rhetorical question, but the answer is clear. God alone and no other can do something like this. And look at how this compares to the question that he asks about Job in verse two. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? These questions of who, they show God's immense superiority to Job, God's power over Job, Job's humility, compared to God's infinity. And then you've got questions that kind of are what questions, questions that emphasize Job's lack of understanding. Like, for instance, what God says in Job 38 verse 23, what is the way to the place where light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? He's asking Job, tell me if you know these things. Or where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding. So you've got a series of questions that emphasize God's power in comparison with Job. You have questions that emphasize Job's finite knowledge, how little understanding he has in comparison with God. And then you also have questions of, that God poses of, can you do this, Job? Have you ever do that, done such a thing that also emphasized his power? Look, for instance, at 38 verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? These are the kind of questions God asks over and over again in his first speech to Job, chapters 38 and 39. And then in chapters 40 and 41, We read a series of more questions, but also here God focuses on these two creatures, behemoth and leviathan. And people have wondered for generations what exactly these two creatures refer to. Some people try to suggest particular creatures in the world that maybe Job is referring to here, maybe God is referring to. Behemoth, for instance, some people have thought perhaps this is a hippopotamus, or perhaps it's an elephant, or perhaps it's a crocodile. And the truth is, we don't really know. And it seems less that behemoth and leviathan are intended to represent particular creatures, than that they are kind of symbolic representations of the mightiest of creatures on land and the mightiest creatures in the sea, creatures whose power would overwhelm Job, but whom God controls with the word of his mouth. What is the point, though, of all these questions, this demonstration of God's power, this reminders to Job of how small his understanding and knowledge really are? How is this a response to Job's questions about pain and suffering? Some people who read this think that this is really a pretty bad answer. Charles Williams, who was one of C.S. Lewis's friends, wrote a novel called War in Heaven. And there's an interesting conversation that takes place in that book. It's between an English vicar and, and someone named Kenneth Mornington, who's an editor of a local journal. And they're talking, and the topic of Job arises. And the vicar says, Job was told he couldn't understand. But then Mornington responds... No, he was taunted with not being able to understand, which isn't the same thing. As a mere argument, there's something lacking, perhaps, in saying to a man who's lost his money and his house and his family and is sitting on the dustbin all over boils, look at the hippopotamus. And you can compare this to what the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung has to say about God's speeches here. Jung actually wrote a whole book on this called Answer to Job. Some people have suggested that this is kind of Jung's Moby Dick. It's his great spiritual masterpiece that emerges out of his own struggles with God. And Jung is very critical here of God's response. He thinks that the way God answers Job reveals much more about God's own narcissism and his apathy and indifference to Job's suffering. Listen to what Jung has to say. God's thunderings at Job so completely miss the point that one cannot help but see how much he is occupied with himself. Yahweh has no interest whatever in Job's cause, but is far more preoccupied with his own affairs. Is this true? I think that what Jung says here, whether we want to admit it or not, is often the response that some of us feel when we read God's answers to Job, these speeches in chapters 38 through 41, that God simply seems wrapped up in himself, indifferent to Job's suffering, more consumed with just showing off than with giving an answer. But I wanna suggest that Jung is wrong, that God's 80-some rhetorical questions that he asks here in his speech That what he does say to Job does, in fact, answer Job, not in the way expected. He does not answer all of Job's questions, everything Job has asked, but he does do something very significant. Here, in his speeches, God reminds Job of who he is as the God of perfect power, freedom, and goodness. He is a God of infinite power, is what he is telling Job, who far transcends anything Job can imagine. And to illustrate this, he points to creation, to the fact that he is the one who brings light out of darkness. He is the one who sets the bound of the seas and the course of the stars. That God and God alone is the one who controls the wind and the waves with a word of his mouth. he feeds and he tames the mightiest of animals. He is a God of infinite power in comparison to Job. At the same time, he's also a God of perfect freedom. It's important. You have to remember that Job's friends, they have been having a conversation with Job for 36 chapters, trying to talk about what God is like and how to make sense of his suffering. And Job's friends, have been repeatedly saying that if Job really were righteous, God would bless him. And if he were not, if he's done something wrong, then God would punish him. And you see, the friends, that I think they're motivated by something good. They want to defend God's justice. But later on in chapter 42, verses 7 and 8, God tells these friends that he is angry with them, that they have not spoken truthfully about them. Why is this? What have they said that is so untruthful about God? Well, Karl Barth, the theologian, when he's reading Job, he says that the biggest mistake that the friends make is that they do not recognize the freedom of God. Listen to what Barth says. The God of whom these friends speak never acts freely. He neither chooses nor loves In good or ill, he can only react to mankind. He can only requite him, whether with salvation or perdition, with blessing or cursing. He owes both one and the other. He is his own prisoner. You see, Job's friends have domesticated God. They've turned him into a kind of cosmic enforcer of karma, who just dispenses blessing and curse according to how we perform. But the God who speaks out of the whirlwind to Job is not constrained by anything. He is a living God who acts in freedom. But, and this is important, he's not just giving Job here a demonstration of his power And an affirmation that he is the living God who acts in freedom with Job. God's speech is also actually an affirmation of his goodness. And you have to remember from several weeks ago when we first started looking at this book, this I said is what Job was fundamentally most struggling with. Is God really good? Does God really love this creation that he has made? And in these speeches, God offers his response to that. He reminds Job that, yes, he is good. And you can see this in multiple ways. First, for instance, look at God's description of himself through these questions. Look at how what he says about himself highlights not only his power, but his intimate love and care of the creation that he has made. God describes himself as providing for the ravens and for the crying young of the ravens. God intimately knows and provides for them. God says that he is the one who watches over the birthing of calves and goats and takes delight at seeing new calves born. God describes the horse and its beauty, and he says that he is the one who has clothed the horse's neck with a mane. The language that's used all throughout this speech when God talks about creation emphasizes not just his power as the creator, but his almost maternal delight in the creatures that he makes. And he reminds Job that this includes Job himself, Look what he says in chapter 40, verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made, as I made you, Job. So that's one way that God demonstrates his goodness to Job. He reminds Job that he is the God who is infinitely transcends Job's own understanding. And at the same time, he is the one who brought creation into being out of delight and who watches over it with intimate care. But another very important aspect that we shouldn't miss in this speech is how he actually appears to Job. God appears to Job here as Yahweh. That's the name that we read when verse 1 in chapter 38 says, then the Lord, that word the Lord is a translation of the word Yahweh. What it's really saying is, then Yahweh answer Job out of the whirlwind. And this might not seem very significant because, as we know, that name occurs all throughout the Old Testament. But if you look at the speeches, these 36 chapters of conversation with Job and his friends, you'll notice that this word does not occur. Throughout all of the dialogue, God has been referred to simply as Elohim, God, or as El Shaddai, the Almighty not as Yahweh. Because Yahweh is the personal, covenantal name of God. This is the name that God takes as the one who has committed Himself in personal relationship to His people. That's what that name signifies. And God then does not just treat Job as a creature. He's not just Elohim. He's not just El Shaddai, the Almighty. He's not just the Creator God. God is the one who has committed himself to Job, who has not abandoned him. He actually comes to Job. He shows up. He comes to him in person. So yes, he doesn't answer all of Job's questions, but he does offer Job something very significant, which is his own personal presence. I I like the way that one Old Testament scholar puts it when he says, A suffering person might exclaim why, but the answer is rarely because, but here I am. In the book of Job, it is Yahweh who answers, here I am. So how then does Job respond to these speeches from God? Well, he kind of has two responses. First, after God's first speech in chapters 38 and 39, we... See a Job who has been humbled. Look what he says in chapter 40, verses four and five. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Job has been questioning God, demanding an answer, insisting on his own righteousness, that he has a right to hear from God. And now we see a Job who is humbled, a Job who is beginning to learn again what it means to fear God, to recognize his place. And you might think that God would stop after that. Job, after all, is obviously humbled, but he doesn't stop. He continues on with another speech. Why does God do this? What is it in Job's response that suggests that perhaps he needs to learn something even further? There's a Peruvian theologian named Gustavo Gutierrez that wrote a book on Job, and I I think he has a very insightful um, answer to this question of why is it that God doesn't stop after Job's first response. Here's what Gutierrez says, Job now knows more about God, but he does not yet know enough. The light has still not dawned fully for him. His struggle has been too extensive and profound for him to change his opinion easily. His answer is given in the first person singular. It will take a costly effort for him to go out of himself and his world. Yahweh, however, will not let go. Yahweh refuses to let Job withdraw from the debate. Yahweh has more to say. Here, too, I think we see God's commitment to Job. He refuses to let Job simply go after being humbled. He wants to continue to meet with him personally and to speak with him. This is when God begins to speak about Leviathan and Behemoth. His second speech also lasts for two whole chapters, chapters 40 and 41. And then Job responds again in chapter 42. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is still clearly humble here. He knows the limits of his understanding, but now something has changed. Now he says he repents This verse has caused a lot of problems for interpreters who have wondered, of what is Job repenting? Of what sin is he repenting? What is he turning away from? Is it of the sin that his friends had told him to repent of? Is Job finally recognizing himself now as guilty as having done something wrong? No. Remember Just after Job says this, God reminds the friends, God tells the friends that they were wrong and Job was right. Job isn't acknowledging somehow some hidden guilt. Instead, Job has now met God in person. And now when he says he repents, he's repenting of his bitterness towards God that had welled up in his heart through his suffering. What we see, I think, in Job's response is not just his humbling then, but his growth in wisdom. Now he understands something about God and about himself that he did not really understand before. Now he understands the majesty and the grandeur of God, the power, yes, but also the beauty and the goodness of God in creation and of God's commitment to him and love. I, I really like what Alvin Plantinga, the philosopher, says about how these speeches of God actually affect Job and answer his questions that have emerged. Here's what Plantinga says, when God does come to Job in the whirlwind, it is not to convince him that God really does have reasons, although it may, in fact, do this. It is instead to still the tempest in Job's soul, to quiet him, to restore his trust for God. You see, this is biblical wisdom. It doesn't answer all of our questions that we might have, but it does teach us what it means to fear the Lord. What Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom, what the book of Ecclesiastes ended with, the fear of the Lord. And it also teaches us what kind of God it is, what kind of Lord it is that we fear. This is wisdom that we continue to need for living today. Because you and I and those we love, we all continue to experience pain and suffering in this life. That hasn't gone away. And rarely do we understand why although we may often ask. But we do know that our God, the God who spoke this world into being and who watches over every creature with care, that that God is with us, Emmanuel. That God has not abandoned us in our pain. In fact, he has come into it and he has taken on that pain himself. And that God, he is a God worth fearing. He is a God we can trust, even in the darkest of nights. Here are some questions for you to discuss. First, what aspect of Job's suffering do you find most relatable? Which is the most difficult for you? Second, how is the God who meets Job in the whirlwind different from the way that Job's friends imagine God to be? How is he different than the way you imagine God to be? Third, how is Job different after meeting God? What does this teach him about wisdom? And finally, discuss this quote. A suffering person might exclaim why, but the answer is rarely because, but here I am. In the book of Job, it is Yahweh who answers, here I am. This week, we'll finish out our reading of the book of Job by reading chapters 32 to 42. I wanna thank you again for joining me for this study of the book of Job. There's a lot that we haven't discussed. We've kind of had a whirlwind tour through this book that ends with a whirlwind. But I hope that even these three weeks of discussion of Job have enriched your understanding, not only of this book, but of what it means to live wisely in a world that's still marked by suffering and pain, and how it is that we can fear the Lord, even as we have to live with questions that remain unanswered. And I wanna invite you to join me again next week as we conclude this study of biblical wisdom by looking at the life of the one person Who truly embodies wisdom, the man Jesus of Nazareth.